Hey guys, so if you're a TV producer, film producer, podcast producer, and you're like me, whenever you go out and you do a long interview or if you need an interview transcribed, you never have anybody to do it, and it's really long and labor intensive. But I'm here to tell you there is a great way to get this done. Transcription Farm offers transcription and translation services for TV and film. Founded by producers for producers, their services are geared specifically toward the needs of television production companies. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, they are fast, secure, and accurate. Easy uploads, free script sync files, no charge for additional speakers, and rates as low as $150 per minute. Mention hearing this ad on Reality of Reality for 10% off your first order of up to 10 hours of video. You can learn more about Transcription Farm at transcriptionfarm.com. And I personally can vouch for them because I use them and they did a fantastic job with a quick turnaround. Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, Justine Harmon. Justine used to be the features director for Glamour and Elle magazine. She is a New York-based journalist and podcaster. Her podcast series, The Baron of Botox, is all of the episodes are now available on iTunes and everywhere else you get your podcasts. I discovered the podcast, I think, through word of mouth and absolutely loved it. It talks about Dr. Frederick Brandt, who was considered sort of the pioneer of Botox back before it was even approved by the FDA. He was a famous New York plastic surgeon who was very revolutionary. He was you know, treated all the celebrities, the rich and famous. He a single visit with him could cost like seven thousand dollars. So um he was sort of the surgeon to the stars, as they say. And he did take his own life um several years ago. And basically that's the starting point for the podcast. And Justine does a deep dive, not just on him and his life, but really talking about other themes like aging and beauty and how that all factored into sort of the culture that created this this myth around him, but also um, in many ways was really a sad commentary on how we value beauty and and all of the all of the things surrounding it. So I highly encourage you to listen to it. I had a really good time talking to Justine. Um, she's obviously extremely smart and very well spoken. So enjoy her podcast and enjoy my chat with Justine. Hey, Justine, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for coming on and doing this while you're at home with all of your children. I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yes, it's been a weird time, but this is a welcome distraction. So I'm thrilled to be talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like it's all about distraction now. I, I actually discovered your podcast before the uh, the the quarantine happened, which I'm grateful that I did. I, I honestly can't remember how I discovered it. It must have been kind of a word of mouth recommendation in the in the podcast community, but it's really, really great. And thank you for such an incredible and well-researched and, and heartfelt series. I, it was really enjoyable. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. So how did you, I know you talk about this a little bit on the podcast, but tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came up with the idea for the pod. Um, I... I am a career magazine editor. I started at People, um, and then I was at Elf for nearly five years, and then Glamour for another three. And I'm always, you know, it's our job to come up 
with ideas that feel really uh, dimensional and engaging. And especially toward the end of my career, um, I, I left in November to pursue independent projects full time, but it just became a more a more of a calculated idea of, well, wh- what is this? Why is the story good, and what makes it so compelling, and how will it live after it's a magazine feature? How will it live online? What will it turn into after that? Even could it be a podcast? Could it be a movie? Could it be a TV show? So you start to think about ideas that really are dimensional and um, have a lot of different threads and levels. And this story for me had always been in my mind. It was a thing that um, I think everyone who worked in media sort of knew about and took um, as just a fact of life. Like, oh yeah, that Dr. Brand thing. Like, wasn't he crazy looking? He was so nice. It was like a thing that everyone just held as a, as a static truth. And then uh, this is a, this is sort of a roundabout way of answering your question. But after I did a podcast I did with glamour called broken hearts, um, which was a similarly very multi-layered and complex story. I was thinking about other things that had a similar shape because we were kind of discussing, maybe we'd do a second season of broken and, um, all of a sudden the, broken, maybe the BR, I don't know, but I was like, Oh my God, Brant. Uh, I'd always <laughs> kind of had it in the back of my mind. I was like, that is an awesome idea. Um, because what's so great about it is he is obviously a fascinating character, but what he represents is what's more interesting. And I think it's like all of the stuff that comes with him is what is really interesting to explore. So he, of course, um, is the focus, but it's not really about him, or that was hopefully what I was trying to get across with the series. Like He is emblematic of so many other things that I find super interesting and hypocritical and contradictory, um, especially as a woman. And so it was a good story uh, on the surface, but why I really was drawn to it was what what is beneath the surface and he was just the you know the glacier or what what iceberg <laughs> the iceberg and the the bulk of the weight and the heft of the story is just beneath the surface yeah that's that's he's absolutely i wrote down in terms of the themes that i thought it represented um that really it was you were trying to make larger points about aging and beauty the beauty industry and society standards for beauty there were class issues in there. I'm sure I'm missing about 10 others, but it, it brought <laughs> yeah. up so many interesting, bigger, bigger layers and themes. Yeah. Well, thanks. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> so did you know Dr. Brandt personally? I didn't. I did. I never met him. And that was such, um, I really wish I had, um, because I think it would have better informed my personal opinion, but in a way it's fine that I didn't because I was able to remain uh, um, objective. However, I have, um, a lot of friends and acquaintances who knew him really well. So I was able to sort of draw from those experiences, but no, I've never, I never met him. Although I do, it is really crazy. If you focus on one person for this long and trying to piece it all together, I do feel like I know him in a way. Um, and a lot of people who did know him have reached out to me and told me that they felt I really did a good job. Um, encapsulating some of the um, the more complex elements of his 
personality and who he was, but yeah, no, I never met him. So that's interesting because when you do focus on one person and obviously you were talking about other things too, but, but really focusing on him and he's obviously not with us. Um, do you feel a sense of responsibility? Are you carrying him with you when you're writing this to think like, oh, is this fair to him? Would he be upset if he heard this? He was so notoriously sensitive to the way yeah. he was portrayed in the media. I wonder if that was sort of like a meta experience. I, you know, I didn't, I, I, I thought it would be anti, I didn't think it would help me to wonder if something might hurt his feelings because I don't think that's journalistic. Ultimately, I was just trying to tell the truth and not to sensationalize and not to harp on elements of who he was that really don't inform the story. And people may criticize that I talked about the way he looked too much, but I really did think it was elemental to understanding why this is such an interesting component of this story, because he was the person beautifying so many faces that we, we think are beautiful. And he, it's just, it's such a crazy disjunct as um, Guy Trebay says between what he saw as beautiful in others versus what he chose for his own face to look like. And so when I was doing the story, yes, I held him near in that I wanted to bring empathy and compassion to every element of the story. But I guess one of the privileges of focusing a story on someone who isn't with us anymore is that they no longer get to dictate the story and they no longer get to have their feelings hurt. And I don't have any ill will at all toward him. I, in a way I love him, but, um, I didn't, I didn't think a lot about if something would hurt his feelings. Um, I didn't want to embarrass him, but I think those things can be held separately because I, I think embarrassment is, pushing things over the line or purposefully misrepresenting some facet of the story. And I didn't want to do that, but I, I couldn't really be held responsible for telling the truth. I don't think. Yeah. I think you did a perfect job. You really did. I just wondered, you know, sort of like on a personal level if that, you know, yeah. everything affects, you're not, you're not made of ice, right? It's just, it was no. sad. I mean, he had a sad in many ways. I, I got such a sense of sadness, obviously when someone takes their own life as and you start the, yeah. podcast, the podcast with that, which I thought was an interesting, what, what actually, what made you, you know, cause a lot of what I do in the podcast is talk to producers and directors. And we talk about kind of the, the behind the scenes of how a story is told and constructed. Right. I mean, there's so many different ways to skin a cat when you have such a rich story like this. What made you start with his death and with his suicide and then kind of go backwards from there? Well, two reasons. One, I wanted to get it out of the way because <laughs> um, I didn't want to linger on it too much. Although as I sort of was working on the series and saw how important suicide awareness is and how important that element of it is, I kind of came back to it a little bit, but without sort of the details of his suicide, but suicide as a larger idea. Um, but I wanted to get it out of the way because it is the thing that everyone remembers about him. And when I was talking to people who were sort of reluctant to participate, what I positioned to them is like, everyone knows how he died. Um, but what about the way he lived? And everyone was like, yeah, like I want him to be remembered for the man he was he wasn't perfect. He was complicated, but he lived a really interesting life. And everyone 
who knew who he was. It's like, oh yeah, that guy who killed himself. And that is not an ideal way to remember anyone. Um, so my two reasons were to get it out of the way. And um, also to bring people in because this is a crowded space, these podcasts. Um, I think there's a lot of emphasis on getting the audience in early and wanting them to kind of stay with you on your journey. And I purposefully made the first episode a little more, um, I want to pick the right word because exaggerated isn't quite it, but I, I wanted it to feel more like a circus than the rest of the series for it to seem really sticky and exciting to people who might not otherwise be drawn to the show. And there's so much interest in true crime and so much desensitizing in this space where someone else's terrible fortune is, you know, our collective gain. And there doesn't feel, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of empathy. And so I was hoping to turn that on its head a little bit by bringing in a little more sensation in the first episode and then being like, actually, this isn't a crazy spectacle. This is a, a story about one man and all of the things surrounding him and a lot of these themes that you mentioned. But uh, I wanted the first episode to really seem like, a, yeah, a little bit crazier than the rest of the season to entice and then to sort of change people's minds as they continue to listen. Oh, well, that's good producing. I think that you did a really good job of, of, of that and also showing how there's no... You know, when someone's mentally ill or suicidal, obviously there's, there's never one thing, or maybe there is, but, but usually it's so many things, you know, and, and you, yeah. and you can try to blame and people do that, um, a lot. And one of the things that you bring up, I think in the very first episode, which I remember at the time being a fan of the incredible Kimmy Schmidt is the show on Netflix that portrayed him kind of not even a thinly veiled portrayal of, uh, you know, very, I think it was Marty Short, right? Uh, was it Martin Short? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's like, yes. a, you know, very um, overblown Dr. Brandt character. And, and you, and that was talked about in circles as being something that, you know, not necessarily threw him over the edge, but was certainly compounded his depression toward the end. And then you heard from Tina mm -hmm. Fey. So talk a little bit about that. So I thought that was really interesting and kind of surprising to me, to, to be honest. Well, I didn't hear from Tina. I heard from her publicist. Um, I her tried. Camp. Yes, her her camp. Um, what's interesting is that I know her publicist a bit personally, and um, because we worked together years ago, and I was very hopeful that Tina would take the opportunity to talk about it because I don't. I don't think anyone blames her. I think it would be really interesting five years after the fact to talk about what is and is inappropriate in that space and why do we feel compelled to parody other people? And what if, you know, even if she was like, yeah, that it wasn't him, I'd never heard of him, anything. Like, I think it would have helped give some friends and family a bit of closure on that topic because right now it's kind of like an open wound um, and it's a good place to put a lot of anger. And I think the conversation around comedy and bullying and 
people who are other, all of these things would really benefit from someone as smart and, in, and intelligent, uh, smart and intelligent, um, as smart and um, nuanced as Tina Fey. I mean, she clearly has a mind that understands these topics in a way that not everyone does. Um, so I was surprised that um, there was so much resistance at the first level, um, so far away from her, you know, it would go from the publicist to who I'm sure her publicist has a direct line to Tina, but I, the reaction I thought was, um, a little aggressive and that's why I chose to include it. Um, and what can you say other, what the gist of the reaction was just, just to summarize it? Cause yeah. it, it, first it was oh. like, a, we're not going to talk, but then it was more of a, yeah. like a direct. And there was more there too, that I chose not to include, um, oh. for personal reasons, but I, the, the reaction was basically like, yeah, we're going to respectfully decline. Um, we also would hope that the series wouldn't go into that considering it was unfounded. Um, which how do you talk about a man's death when the coverage surrounding it is so tied to this other event? It would be a strange omission. I mean, it, it's what happened. The news was saturated with the idea that this was clearly a parody of him and a cruel one at that three weeks before he took his own life. I mean, it is completely germane and appropriate to include it. But then um, the publicist came back and sort of pointed a finger at me, which at the time I, I thought, and I, you know, the way I include it in the series, I read it and then I say, Hmm, or something like that. Um, right. Where the publicist, yeah, I was like, huh, where the publicist is basically like, well, what about your role in creating these narratives that are damaging to women and magazines, uh, which I thought was kind of funny because the interplay between magazines and publicists, publicists want their clients to be in these magazines that at the same time she's saying are so damaging. So we're all a part of this thing. So that's what I was saying is it's sort of like, um, what is that called? Like a your own codependence. Yes, there's a name like a Gordy a Gordian knot or something. One of those things okay. that the more you pull on it, the 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 tighter it gets. Like we're all, yeah, we're all part of this system that sort of, yeah, it probably isn't that great. And so a lot of um listeners like in iTunes um reviews, which are so cruel, uh, <laughs> or not cruel, but they are, you know, I read them and I'm like, oh. Um, but they were saying, like, how could you not examine your role? Like the the narrator is um, so shallow and has no introspection about her role in all of this. But I think that the exercise was the series. Like it was sort of my version of kind of putting in front of me my role in all of this and the, the role that um, all of us play in creating famous people we put on a pedestal and beauty and all of the elements that sort of warp our sense of democracy and equality in a very pop culture saturated environment. And I was trying to do just that. So then when the publicist was like, well, what about what you're doing? I was like, I, I'm, I'm acknowledging this. Like that is why I'm, I'm making this thing. So I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's funny. I haven't talked about this in a, in a little bit because the series ended uh, you know, a month ago or so. And then crazy times are upon us, but, um, it's, um, it's a really interesting exercise to create something so personal and to put so much energy into something and then sort of have to explain your choices because I don't feel a hundred percent convicted that 
every choice I made was the right one or that it was the best execution. Um, but I, I did try and I really, uh, cared about trying to see it from every angle. And of course I have blind spots. Everyone does. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just, well, as I, I'm talking, as I'm talking, I'm like, this is so complicated. I can't help but think that it was the way you were just talking was a little bit parallel. I don't know if you probably maybe even didn't realize it to Dr. Brandt in the sense that, you know, maybe not everything he did was perfect or, but always the intent was there to do his best. And I, you know, I, it's just that sort of stinging criticism as much as you want to feel confident about your own choices. Yeah. You know, it's really absolutely. hard to get that kind of feedback when you felt like you poured your whole life into it. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and I think there are many camps or I, schools of thought on how to deal with critics. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are like, don't listen to them and just don't read the comments. And that's what everyone who loves me was saying. And I don't really buy that as a solution for me because I want to continue to get better at telling stories in an equitable way. But I also think I am influenced by other opinions. Um, and I think that can be really um, helpful and interesting. And, um, I don't know, maybe I'll change my mind again, but I, I think Dr. Brandt, he, yeah, he struggled with feedback and he had a hard time seeing what he actually believed in versus what everyone else believed in. And that, that is a struggle. A lot of us, um, understand either acutely or, um, or we, we don't acknowledge it at all. And I think when you're trying to tell a story and to tell it truthfully and to honor what happened, having feedback on where you went awry or mistakes you made, I think you have to read it or else you're, you're just, I don't know, creating more misinformation. So I was very drawn to the comments and I've continued to stay on them because I just... I'm, and uh, an interesting thing is you have to consider the source of the critique. Like, why is that person compelled to say something? Um, but I think I, ha I have a pretty good instinct of how to ferret out the truth. The thing that really is important about something or if it's just a garbage comment that makes no sense. Um, but there were little nuggets of wisdom in there and I, I tried to address them. And I did the same thing with Broken Hearts. We, we all did. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm compelled to incorporate feedback into the final product and maybe, maybe that's not right, but it felt right to me. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I have one of my iTunes comments about two years ago was she's so annoying. She interrupts so much. And I was like, Oh my God, yeah. you're right. You're right. And I really took it to heart and it was helpful. I think it is. And like, I, you know, Dak Shepard has one of the most popular podcasts ever and I think he interrupts the people he interviews too. And a lot of people say that and he doesn't change it. And no one wants to get interrupted when they've been asked to come on a show. You know, like, I think that that would be a great thing for him to, uh, consider. <laughs> and, I heard he, I heard he was getting better, but I'll have to, uh, I'll have to <laughs> check my sources. I don't listen to him cause I can't listen to three hour podcasts. Yeah. I haven't listened in a while. I was turned off. I was just like, let Ashton Kutcher speak. Um, so <laughs> right. I don't know. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Dr. Brand. And 
I love that you kind of started with Aviva Drescher because I'm a huge Housewives <laughs> fan and I'm like, oh my God, Aviva, Aviva. So, but I thought when she, awesome. yeah, and I'm not surprised that she felt free to talk because that's totally her. Um, but what was interesting about her and I'm wondering how you connected with her was that she basically admitted I went to him before I started on the show. She's not, she was on Housewives of New York because I felt the pressure to keep up with everybody else who was, you know, chiseled and cut and fillered and Botoxed. Mm-hmm. So well, she how, did, did, how did you did she say with, that somewhere? I think she said that she knew she was going on a reality show and felt pressured, you know, to look her best kind of thing. Yeah, but I, she didn't indicate that it was because other people looked a certain way. Maybe she felt that way. But or maybe I, I inferred that. that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, she didn't say that, but I'm sure that is part of it. Um, yeah, sorry. What was the question, though? I'm just curious how you connected with her and decided to interview her, because you interviewed a lot of people, um, you know, on the on kind of the fashion, or sorry, the beauty side and people who knew him, but not that many patients. So I thought it was interesting that you connected with her. I was just yeah. curious. Um, well, I tried to interview as many patients as I could, and I was not able to connect with Madonna, Kelly Ripa, Gwyneth Paltrow, mm-hmm. Ellen Barkin. Who else did I go to? Um, Mark Jacobs said no. Um, a variety of people who, um, were outspoken about him at the time of his death, several of whom spoke at his uh, memorial service. Uh, no one else but Aviva and Joy Behar spoke to me. So I think wow. it's interesting. Uh, yeah. So Aviva, I guess, has like nothing to lose. I don't, I, I, she's not currently someone who, you know, is on a show or hawking something that I know of. So maybe she felt freer. Um, and Joy Behar, you know, that is her persona and that is, she seems to be very forthcoming. But yeah, all of these people with whom he had long professional relationships and personal relationships, um, declined. So I mean, she, she was one of the only celebrities who would talk about it. And so I thought, a, she's amazing. Like what a great, hilarious person in pop culture history. But like, also it just goes to show you that people really don't, don't feel compelled now, even as they did then to associate with this, um, in that way, that's how it felt to me. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe it's, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think speaking to a lot of people who knew him and a lot of sources for the story, that was a recurring theme. You know, they loved him when he was flying to the set and giving them free Botox, but you know, that was about the extent of it was a very one-sided relationship. Yeah, I thought you had an amazing episode about that, sort of exploring the hierarchy of rich people and yeah. celebrities and sort of the help, you know, and that shockingly, mm-hmm. I actually, that did surprise me because the plastic surgeons fell so low on that ladder of sort of the acknowledged staff that the stigma around it is was and is still so strong that they just, they use you, use, you know, they pay you and then you're you're gone. He did not really float in the circles that I think he expected to float in because of what he was doing. And he was rich in his own right, which is oh, so ironic to me. Yeah. Um, and that hierarchy, I made that up. Like it's not, you know, <laughs> well, now we know carved it. in <laughs> stone somewhere, but it was a, my perception. And I think Raj Kanodia 
um, sort of reinforced it. And I mean, this is a man who has made so much money on those jobs that he created or he built a house. I think, uh, I don't know if he built it from scratch and on spec, but it's on the market or it was on the market for $180 million. That is the most expensive house I've ever heard of ever. And that is a house that knows jobs built. And he still <laughs> feels like no one will, you know, credit his work. And, you know, people, as he said, like people will say, oh, the eyebrows was this person, the manicurist was this person. And no one acknowledges that the reason this person is like on the cover of a magazine is because he gently and brilliantly changed the skeleton of this person or the cartilage on their face to be just a little more beautiful. And that is a very, very specific and impressive skill that no one wants to talk about, um, or at least admit they've, they've, um, enlisted. And I think it's just such an interesting thing. Yeah. He was the one who did, you, you started by saying he did Ashley, Ashley Simpson's nurse job, right? That that's yes. Yes. Dr. Canodia. Who I love. Yeah, very, very good work. So I really (laughs) felt like you did an excellent job of bringing Dr. Brand's personality to life. You know, everything from kind of how he spent so much time with his patients, hours and hours, sometimes where other patients were waiting hours and hours, but also Mm -hmm. kind of, you called it like a cross between therapy and theater. Yeah. So talk about sort of his style and how he was as a person, just personally and professionally. I mean, I think, you know, I tried to get a sense of it when I went and saw um, Dr. Analik. Um, but I really think it was, you know, as someone who has gotten some of these um, procedures done and even like thinking about right now, you know, my roots are going to grow out. I My <laughs> pedicure is all chipped and my skin is breaking out and having the ability to thwart some of those things that make you feel self-conscious is on a re- it's a real it's a high for sure like the idea that you could just like go in this office and then a couple days later just be a little more beautiful and a little more resilient to the aging process or um you know the gnarly effects of pollution all of these things it is such an amazing promise there there there's a giddy sense of like i can control this and so you go in this room and this guy is sweet and focused on you and funny and so connected to you. And he wields this power to make your life a little more manageable, um, especially when, you know, the anxiety around these topics, especially you're a famous person, let's say, and your face is your moneymaker. Like I was at Dr. Analytics and I saw, I'd say in the series, very cheaply, uh, you know, an Oscar winner, but a very famous recognizable woman leaving his place and her face looked all lasered up and sort of red. And then a couple of days later, she was on Instagram doing something like a tutorial or a, you know, and she looked beautiful. And I'm sure when she walked in that office, she was like, ah, this is going to make my life a little easier. This is going to help me, um, professionally and personally. And I think he was able to harness all those things and to really take your mind off the fact that you were anxious about, something that I don't think is so shallow. Um, I think a lot of people think it is, but I think we all have these fears that they just manifest in different ways. And if you have the money to spend, um, I can see why you would spend it this way because I've had a few of these things done and um, they, it, it's powerful. It's powerful what it does. They work. 
<laughs> well, a lot of the they time. They work. Yeah. They really do. Like, <clears throat> it's not really, they do. It works. And um, he made the experience as pleasant as it can be. And you leave just with like a little pep in your step because you're like, ah, okay, I did that. That's done. It's like going to the dentist. You're like, okay, I don't have to do that for a while. Great. Like, I think there's a, I don't know. I think it, it, it could change your day going to see him. And he, from everyone, he really cared. And it's really nice to interact with someone who cares about you. Like, I, I totally think that there's magic in that, even if it's just 15 minutes. Um, of course, there are I understand the, the critiques of it, but I, I think at its core, he really understood that he was giving people something they, they wanted, whether or not that it's good to want that or whether or not it's a want that, you know, turns into something. It, it's a complicated topic, obviously, but, um, I, I think, yeah, it was a, it was a really, he just, he got it. Yeah. And as you mentioned at the beginning of the, of our podcast, um, he did do a lot of these procedures on himself and he did, I, I don't know how to even describe what he did to his face. I don't, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But, um, yeah. but obviously a lot of people will call it extreme and that, you know, he was, he was an exaggerated look, let's say that. So what did you make of that? I mean, somebody who was known for kind of creating art on these women's faces who did something more drastic to himself. What was that disconnect or how do you, how do you process that as someone who's now kind of been studying him for a while and inside his psyche? Yeah. I mean, that's obviously the, the, the core conundrum. Um, I think, I think we never see ourselves clearly. I think we all, focus on little things about our appearance that we think are very unattractive because we saw something formative at a certain point. We were like, well, that's beautiful. And I don't have that, or I aspire to have that. So if I could just get it that way, then I'll feel comfortable. And I don't know what his personal beauty ideals were, but I don't think that he was it. Um, and I think he had at his disposal, all of these things that could help him chip away at whatever he thought was imperfect about his face. And it's a slippery slope. Um, I, 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 people, a lot of people use the term, you know, dysmorphia and I, I'm not a doctor. I have no idea. Um, I think it's a combination of not being able to see yourself properly, having tools on hand and maybe thinking it doesn't matter so much what I look like as long as I totally understand how to apply and use these products in a way that is going to deliver for my patients the results they desire. And he could use himself as a guinea pig. And I actually talked to people who said that that was too generous, like this idea of him sacrificing his face <laughs> for his clients. But I don't think it's that far-fetched. Like if he has a new product and he wants to see its lifting effects on the eyebrow I mean, who else? I'm sure he had friends who wouldn't mind, but I, I think it makes sense that he would say, you know, whatever, I've already gone this far and I want to try it out. And I, I think, yeah, the combination of all those things led to an appearance that some people thought was strange, but a lot of people I've spoken to said he, he liked the way he looked. That was his, that's what he wanted to look like. Um, and I can't really understand why, but I don't judge it. 
Yeah, I understand. So you talked yeah. to, you tried to explore his, you know, trying to explore him. You tried to figure out why he seemed to be estranged from his family and sort of, you know, distanced himself in a, in a real way. I think you spoke to his nephew. Um, and it, yeah. it never quite added up to me what was going on there with him and his family. What did you make of the whole thing? You know, another part, I was... I guess another podcast, they asked that same question and I sort of bungled my answer because, um, I didn't want to betray the confidence of sources. And, um, but I think honestly, what I inferred is that, um, they, the family just, you know, it was a conservative religious family and they weren't thrilled with his sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Um, it just didn't square for them. And, it was a different time when he, you know, he was born, when was he born? Uh, he would have been 70 now. So he was born 1949, 50s. I think. Okay. Yeah. I think it was 49. Um, I can look it up, but yeah, I mean the, uh, the, you know, got it. it. It was a different situation and I just don't think they ever came around on that topic. And I think that that can cause a huge rift, obviously Frederick Brandt. Birthday. Yeah, I feel like he they were born. trying. Go ahead. Forty nine. You were right. I feel like they yeah. tried to make it more about them being judgmental about what he did for a living and less about his sexuality. But that could be spin, just in terms of. Yeah, I. I mean, I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth, but my sense is it was the sexuality, and it just really didn't connect for them. So you also talked, I thought this was interesting. I wanted to ask you about Jonas Shacknai. I wasn't aware. Mm-hmm. So he was, um, he owned a company that distributed Restylane and he got to know Dr. Brandt pretty well. Did you, were you aware of, of his whole thing and that sort of connection to the true crime? Yes. Okay. I wasn't sure because you hadn't mentioned it and I don't know that there was necessarily a place to mention it, but just as someone who's very yeah, I, caught up I, on all I, that stuff. <laughs> it's an interesting story for sure. And one that des- deserves its own podcast. I believe there was an oxygen yes. series about it. Um, I had something about it at, in an original draft, but then when I listened back to the tape, it felt like a red herring. Yeah. Um, I don't think that it connects to this story in any way. He he did say that, you know, he alluded to the fact that Dr. Brand had been really supportive of him during a really difficult period in his life. And mm. I just thought throwing to it without any context and just making it like a line felt like a disservice to him. Um, I know there was a lot of suspicion that his brother and I think listeners to this podcast should, you know, they can Google it and, fa- and they'll see what we're talking about. But it just felt like an oversimplification. And I couldn't think of a responsible way to include it. Um, and so ultimately, and I, you know, I did consider, I was like, well, does he have a motive here? Like, does he want to like, does he have an ax to grind? And it just felt kind of unrelated. So yeah, no, maybe, I understand the decision. I just was yeah. even curious, like, does she necessarily know? But you know, cause I don't, no, yeah. Okay, cool. Just because, you know, when you're so <laughs> ingrained, like I'm so Im- immersed in all this true crime stuff, you is not necessarily yeah. going to come up. But, um, okay. So yes, everyone can Google what we're talking about. Um, but yeah. it's just interesting when I heard his no, name, I kind of jolted I, in I my car. <laughs> had you, so you'd heard of who he was before? I watched the whole oxygen series. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I didn't know. But then when I Googled him, I was like, interesting before oh, yeah. we spoke, but I didn't know that story. 
Yeah. Um, and I, that's why I'm surprised because it's like, you know, I thought of him in that context. That I was like, wait, he's in Baron yeah. Botox? What? Um, but like he was being so generous with his time and his insights that I just, you know, I had to make a decision. And I ultimately just was like, eh, doesn't feel right. Yeah, I understand the red herring of it all. It would have felt, it's probably hard, no good way to, to include that. Um, yeah. So as we're wrapping up, you know, I thought um, one of the things that, again, I started by saying what I thought the larger themes were that you did a really great job of driving home. Um, and I've written down the statistic that I'm, this was so unbelievable that in 2018, Americans spent more than $16.5 billion on cosmetic procedures, which blew me away because I only think of it as, you know, like the 1% doing yeah. work. And that's, that represents a really big number. So yeah. what, what, you know, and, and, and also so much has evolved, right. Since Dr. Brandt started and it's, it's mm-hmm. Botox was such a quiet, you know, taboo thing to ever even mention back in the day. And then over the years, it's become this like, yeah, I'm getting my roots done, getting Botox, you know, no big deal. Um, totally. but the thing that remains that you, I took out a quote from Linda Wells, who said, Nobody wants to look older than their age and no one wants to grow old gracelessly. And I thought that was kind of epitomized or summarized really everything that this was about. And I was curious when you were done with it, did it change your thoughts about aging and beauty and, you know, the industry just in general, like what were some of your takeaways? Did it change anything from when you went into it? You know, it's interesting uh, this that quote and what, what you were saying kind of made me I just started watching you know we're all watching new stuff now because we're like locked in our homes <laughs> yeah. um but six feet under yeah, and that's a new thing now I feel like everyone for some reason is rediscovering that show yeah well I think you know desperate times call for <laughs> sh- like depressing shit and <laughs> I find it really scratches the itch but also what they're doing there, the Fishers at the family morgue, you know, the embalming and the restoring and the presenting people as the way, the way that their loved ones remember them, which is probably even better looking than they were the day they died, which probably wasn't very good looking at all. Um, Mm -hmm. But all of that is like an inverse of what we're talking about. It's this idea of um, aging and dying with grace and having pride and feeling like this person I loved looks the way I remember them. So saying goodbye to them is less painful. It's all a rite of passage. And he was sort of a shepherd on that journey, like not to mix my metaphors, but like, I think there's something really mythological about his role in this and it is ageless. Um, And as far as my own person, you know, I honestly think before I did all this, I engaged in a lot of, you know, practices that helped me feel like I look better or I could, you know, to give me an edge in a way. And I actually had a really interesting conversation with Robbie Myers, my old boss at Elle, about how I do think that it's an edge to be able to, you know, take the wrinkles out of your forehead or make your hair a color that is prettier, all that stuff. Um, but I now I'm a little more skeptical of my own intentions and making sure that when I do something, it's not so that I think I'm more attractive to someone else, but so I, I feel better. It's a complicated thing, but I I have noticed a shift in my thinking or if one day I look in the mirror and I don't love what I see, I'm like, well, this is just one day of many days and maybe it's 
something else that's bothering me because how could my reflection have changed in a day, you know? (laughs) So I think, um, I've actually eased up on myself a little bit. Um, and that's a gift for sure. Um, and I think you're right when you said earlier that this is not, I, I feel like you need to write the article about, you know, beauty in the time of quarantine, because the fact that we are not able to do anything and like, yeah. you know, oh my God, I tried to wax my own eyebrows and it did not go right. well. And sort of all of this, you know, I haven't worn makeup in 10 days. I mean, just interesting. Sure. There's something interesting where we're sort of reckoning with our real selves now. I think that's an interesting take and I'm going to command yeah, you to write an article. Of like, yeah, we're all going to, we're like two weeks away from finding out what everyone's natural <laughs> hair color is. And I honestly, I think that is a silver lining and it is kind of related to this series. I've been thinking about the show. I think it, it's an interesting, um, epilogue because yeah, my hair is going to grow out. Maybe I'll see if I've gone gray. I have no idea. Um, (laughs) and my toenails look like crap, but like, whatever. Um, it is so it's freeing in a way. And I, it's silly sort of to say out loud, but I, 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 I welcome that part of this quarantine experiment for sure. Nice. So you mentioned at the beginning that you wanted to do something that could be exploited, you know, in other mediums that was rich enough. Mm-hmm. And so have you had offers for TV or movie or anything for this? Cause it seems like it would make such a good scripted show. Thank you. Um, we're in, it's early days yet and obviously nothing's really happening right now, but right. that is hope that, I mean, that would be my, that would be amazing. Uh, scripted TV is my dream, but, uh, no, nothing, nothing to share just yet. Okay. And then what do you have coming up on the horizon? What are you working on? Well, no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just, you know, I have some irons in the fire and I'm, I'm circling a couple different ideas for a new podcast, but, um, I, I don't have any news just yet, but I, I plan to continue, on this path, picking one story and teasing it apart and whatever format that comes in, um, you know, whether that's a podcast or a written thing. And then I'm just doing some freelance writing and have some magazine stuff coming up, but, um, yeah, nothing I can really talk about just yet. Well, I'm sure the next one will be great. You have, you're really good journalist. You have a great voice. So you have a great writer. So you have the sort of the the trifecta of, of skills. And, and I really enjoyed the podcast. Tell people where they can find you on social. I'm following you on Twitter and where else we can find uh, you. Well, oh, this is my, my conundrum. I'm private on Instagram okay. and I keep, but I, <laughs> I've had a few, I mean, nothing crazy, but you know, I have a lot of requests that I'm sort of keeping on ice because I can't decide what to do. Um, I know it's an excellent tool for, helping you market yourself. But I also put pictures of my kids there. So maybe I'll start one. But my favorite way to connect with people is Twitter. Um, And my handle is Justine Harmon, H-A-R-M-A-N. And I I think even especially now, Twitter is like, I spend a lot of time on Twitter and my DMs are open. So if anyone has any story ideas or anything, just slide on in there. Yeah, I slid on in and that's how we connected. <laughs> it's it's true. It is. Well, Justine, thank you so much. It was so great to talk yeah. to you. Everyone listen to the Baron of Botox. It's available anywhere you get your podcast. And thanks again for talking to me. My pleasure. Thank you so much. 